You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, UFC 187 this past Saturday, pretty awesome. Really awesome. Yeah, one of the best nights of all-around fights we've seen in a long, long time. And how about it? You know how they love to do the thing where when there's a card that doesn't look that good on paper and then it actually turns out pretty fun and it's kind of like a big fuck you, see, I told you so right in all our faces. And then stuff like this happens and you're like, oh yeah, sometimes when you just make an awesome card that has a whole bunch of awesome looking fights on it, it turns out awesome. Why don't we do this more often? Yeah, it's like you make a, a, a fight card awesome enough and then it doesn't even – totally kill the show when the light heavyweight champion drops off the card and uh, the president of the Degestani debate club injures his knee and cannot be there. Like you get a couple of guys to fill in. It's not as awesome as maybe it would have been, but it's still totally awesome. Yeah. A couple of guys can go on hiatus. It doesn't to- totally screw you up. Just be on the sidelines for a while for reasons we're not totally going to explain. You know, normal stuff happens. Stuff. Well, Ben, we got three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast, and kind of a lot to talk about, so maybe we should just get to it. In round number one, yep, Daniel Cormier is going to go out there with his socks pulled up to the middle of his calves and his long-sleeved shirt tucked into his shorts like a middle-aged dad going out to mow the lawn, and then he's going to go make one of the toughest SOBs in the light heavyweight division wish that he'd never been born. That's a pretty nice little Saturday at the Cormier house. And in round number two, I still have no idea who that dude Chris Weidman beat up was, but I guess this is our last chance to join the team. And if we don't, Chris Weidman says he's going to cancel our invitation. So pass, I guess. But he loves you. Still going to take a pass. So few people love you. And in round number three, this weekend in Guayana, Brazil... It's the return of Carlos Condit as he fights Tiago Alves for the welterweight championship of 2008. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Justice Latvala. Nice. He writes, hey guys, do you remember that one Belarusian fighter guy? What's his name? Arlovsky something. That glass jaw fella. You remember him? Total washout, huh? Seriously, have you ever seen this kind of comeback? I think this committee owes an apology. Now, I'm not certain what committee he's talking about. To reelect the president? I don't know. Just the, uh, perhaps the committee that is the mixed martial arts hardcore fans of the world? Are we a committee? Does he think the C in, in CME stands for something different? For a committee? I'm going to propose that we create a committee to perhaps... And also a super PAC while look, we're at it. Look into the idea of figuring out which committee Justice Ladval is talking about. Yeah. But his overall point, I feel, is well made. With Andre Arlovsky going out this weekend uh, and getting into an absolute slobber knocker with Travis Brown, one of the better... Uh, heavyweight fights we've seen in a while. I don't know if, as Mike Goldberg said, it was our new favorite fight of all time. 
But uh, he did sound like he was really going to take some time to soberly assess everything before just yelling that into a microphone, didn't he? Uh, it was a great fight, and Andre Arlovsky ended up winning in in kind of stupefying upset fashion. Travis Brown, I thought, was impressive in his ability to not get knocked out for so long after he was initially almost knocked out by Andre Arlovsky. And um, as a result, you've got, what is he, 36-year-old Andre Arlovsky now on a four or five fight win streak? Yeah, uh, five fights uh, since his loss to Anthony Johnson, Anthony Johnson. In, in World Series of Fighting, and three suddenly, fights since returning yeah, to the UFC last year. Suddenly, like, kind of relevant in a heavyweight division where it's honestly pretty easy to be relevant if you win a couple of fights, but maybe staring down the barrel of a fight against Stipe Miocic. Uh, and, you know, I would say not totally out of the realm of possibility that Andre Arlovsky could maybe sneak into, like, an interim heavyweight title fight if somebody gets injured. Now... I know what you're thinking. No one ever gets injured for a heavyweight title fight. But uh, how crazy would that be to see Andre Arlovsky suddenly back in the thick of the UFC heavyweight title picture? I still keep struggling with what to make of this. Because if you wanted to be an asshole about it, you you probably could, right? Like, he, he came back. He had that uh, fight against Brendan Schaub that uh, I think uh, Dana White declared nobody won. Uh, and he got the split decision in that one. Um, then he knocked out uh, Bigfoot Silva in the first round before we really got a, too much of a chance to see either man do anything. It was just like Arlovsky, you know, he looked good and dropped Bigfoot and put him away. And then this one where he comes out there, we're to believe, on one leg, having injured his calf right before the bout uh, and takes it to Travis Brown. I mean, this one, like if you'd ask me, hey, these guys are both totally healthy what do you think is going to happen here? I'm, I was all set to be sad for Andre Arlovsky. Like this one had the makings of something that, that breaks our hearts uh, for those of us who remember back in the glory days of like 2005 when he was walking around looking like an international playboy and possibly a spy. Uh, and then he goes out there and he's the one who rocks Travis Brown, even takes a shot, which usually for the old Arlovsky, that would have been lights out, right? And he took it, got spun around. He was Probably fortunate by then that Travis Brown still seemed too rocked to really take right. advantage of him. He was falling over as he was trying to to follow up. But you know, to to go out there and pull off a win like that on one leg for Andre Arlovsky, it does you know you kind of dream of glory for the guy all over again. You wonder what's possible, and yet at the same time, if you tell me like, okay, fight with Stipe Miocic is next. A part of me still says, oh, damn it, this is going to be bad for poor Andre. Yeah, that seems like a tough draw for him. But, I mean, frankly, so did Travis Brown. And yeah. look, look what happened there. You know what is most striking to me about this rebound from Andre Arlovsky? Kind of, you mentioned it while you were talking, that that spinning back fist from Travis Brown. Seems like a few years ago, that would have knocked him out cold. Because when he had, uh, when he went through his troubles back then in, uh, you know, 2009 to 2011, when he lost four straight fights. Uh, the thing about Andre Arlovsky, who maybe never had the greatest chin in the heavyweight division, but like the thing that had really declined on him was his ability to take a punch. And we yeah. saw him get just knocked cold in kind of frightening fashion a few times. And, you know, aside from that, I don't know that he, the rest of his skills ever diminished that much. He has always been an athletic mobile heavyweight uh, who has some of the better striking skills in the landscape, I would say. Uh, and now he hasn't been knocked out since 2011 and he's had this run where, you know, where he's been very successful aside from that loss to Anthony Johnson and a no contest against Tim Silvio that, um, I think as the fight went, 
Andre Arlovsky actually won, but was yeah. disqualified for using well, soccer and, kicks without the referee's consent over there in one FC. <laughs> oh, good times. So, but I mean, also that Anthony Johnson fight, where we're talking about his chin, he he took some bungalows in that one. Uh, he he took some chingasos as. Yeah. Uh, as Justin Scoggins' corner might say. So he, it's weird, though. You're right, though, because it seemed like when he was going down a hill in that regard, you don't usually see people come back from that. Right. Usually and once your chin starts to go, it just keeps going. Well, that was what I was going to bring up. And, like, I don't know the physiological reason why your chin would get worse and worse as you get older and the more you get knocked out. But I guess it makes some sense. So now I have to ask medical doctor Ben Folks. Uh, can it come back? Because it seems like the the first thing is not necessarily based on any medical science that I'm aware of. So why not then down the road a piece, if you don't get knocked out for four years, maybe it returns? Yeah, no. Uh, as a medical doctor, uh, my answer is yes, it could come back. And if you follow my seven-step plan uh, with four easy payments, of $419.99, uh, you too can rehabilitate your chin. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, anecdotally, it doesn't seem like it usually comes back. But I, who knows? I mean, maybe some of those fights like like Brett Rogers, like that one where if you go back and watch that fight and you're like, man, it just seems like maybe it's a failure of confidence on Arlovsky's part as much as anything else. Like that, it seemed like that that Fedor fight was the beginning of like a dark time in, in Andre Arlovsky's life. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, like speaking to the rest of his skills, he was kind of winning that fight before yeah. he got knocked unconscious the, with his eyes still open. Yeah. The, the Fedor fight. Yeah. Movie fashion. Yeah. No, he was totally winning it. Uh, and it seemed like maybe that, that psychological screw job was as tough as anything. So who knows? I mean, 36 is really not that old in the UFC's heavyweight division anymore. That's no, the crazy a, thing. He's a spring chicken out there. Yeah, that's he could right. fight four or five more years. Yeah. And like you said, like put together a couple of fights and have a couple ACLs that aren't on your body tear and you could be in a UFC title fight. That's, that's not out of the question at all. Yeah, you just have to be in the mix at That's all right. times. And or then, just within within left-hooking distance of the mix is fine. Next question this week comes to us from the Jesse White Deer. So not to be confused with any of the pretender-ass Jesse White Deers not, out there. Not one of the lesser Jesse White this Deers. This is the Jesse White Deer. He or she writes, How did you guys rate John McDessie's chill dog impression at UFC 187? And is it a smart move to recognize he would he was hurt and wave the fight off? Disgust, kind sirs. Disgust, kind sirs. Ah, uh, so John Magdesi gets injured. We're led to believe maybe perhaps his jaw was broken at the hands of Donald the Cowboy Cerrone. Uh, always got to take those in the octagon medical diagnoses with a grain of salt, I think. But, uh, you know, in real time, it was kind of funny to watch John Magdesi try to call timeout in the middle of an MMA fight. Because as you know, you cannot do that, and that results in an automatic TKO by the referee. But, you know, when you really think about it, if you if your jaw is broken by a kick, or if you believe your jaw is broken by a kick, this is a smart move, right? Because I don't know what else you're really supposed to do. You could collapse to the mat and tap out, but there's no guarantee that that's not going to lead to more strikes in your face before the referee right. you know, can get there. So like John Magdessi going with the chill dog at UFC 187, 
in retrospect, that was the right thing to do. It's also possible that when Donald Cerrone puts his shin like a damn crowbar across the side of your head in the immediate aftermath, you might not be making like a completely rational cost-benefit analysis right. decision. Like you have a better uh, excuse for calling this timeout than Chris Webber. In that one yes. uh, national championship Yes, game. you do. And, you know, I don't know if you saw his uh, his Facebook page update where he's kind of sounding like uh, maybe he's going to take a step back and think about where his career is and, and what he wants to do with it. Uh, and he mentions that how he took a lot of damage in the fight uh, and he's never really taken that much damage before. And so that that'll make you think about some things. Honestly, when I saw him do it at the time, it did seem like the smart thing to do because at that point, he seemed like he probably should have realized you're not going to beat Donald Cerrone. Donald Cerrone is just going to keep on beating up on you for as long as you want to hang around and endure it or as long as you can endure it. You've made all the money you're going to make tonight. You, the money you made for showing up and getting, repping your sponsors and all that stuff, that's that's going to be pretty much it. So what's the point of absolutely making Donald Cerrone destroy you or seeing like how merciful the ref is feeling in that particular fight. It's just that you are going to take some shit from some of the fans, but Hey, I mean, Donald Cerrone kicked any of us in the jaw. We might want to chill dog. We might. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so this was obviously not the matchup that we had anticipated for Donald, the cowboy Cerrone. He was supposed to fight Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, in what obviously I think would have been a number one contender fight. But uh, Nurmagomedov got injured again, and so Cerrone gets matched up with John Macdessey. On short notice, I think we should point out in Macdessey's favor. Um, after the fight, he said this was his worst training camp ever and that he had been injured throughout it, but he did go out and look pretty damn impressive, uh, although this did kind of seem like one of those performances that uh, Cerrone's probably going to be super hard on himself about, even though I thought he looked pretty impressive. He's won eight in a row now in the UFC lightweight division. I thought I saw somebody on Twitter, one of the stat mongers, say that no one had ever won eight fights in a row in the UFC without getting a title shot before. Uh, so I guess we would like to think that this would qualify him as the number one contender for Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, even though we didn't, you know, uh, John McDessie, I don't think, really puts an exclamation point on the win streak. Well, but, I mean, Dana White has said that that's what they'll do is so, the next one for Rafael Dos Anjos. But then, like, you know, that, the, that's going to be a wait. Right. The wild card is, can you get Donald Cerrone to sit still long enough for Rafael Dos Anjos to come around and fight him? Yeah. And also, like, who knows what what could happen in the division between now and then. The, the dude could go out there and injure himself wakeboarding or, or whatever the hell he's doing. And throw off all the plans or Dos Anjos could get injured again and, and Cerrone be motivated to go ahead and take another fight in the interim. So until we actually, you know, see them showing up to the same way in, I don't know if we can really get too pumped about it yet, but it's one of those things where I guess we're kind of just saying like Donald Cerrone's body of work at this point deserves a title shot. Because like you said, I mean, it went over Nurmi. Yeah, that's title shot worthy. A win over John McDessie on short notice. Maybe not. We're just kind of saying, well, Donald Cerrone is the best idea any of us can come up with right now. I got no problem with that. Yeah, he's either I can't remember if he's fourteen and three or fifteen and three in the UFC now, and uh, that is better than you ever could have forecast for him when he first came over from the WEC in two thousand eleven, uh, where he'd lost what two or three title title fights prior to that, two of them to Benson Henderson and one to Jamie Varner. He didn't necessarily seem like a guy who was going to set the world on fire. 
And uh, I saw someone, I can't remember if this was in an email or someone on Twitter earlier today kind of asked the open question, what would be funner than Donald Cerrone, UFC lightweight champion? I feel like the answer to that question is not very much. No. Although the, you know, we've talked, as we've talked about on the show a bunch of times before, his Achilles heel is really his own uh, inability to, to, like be judicious in, in his choice of fights. Like if he was the UFC lightweight champion and he insisted on continuing to fight four or five times a year, I got to think his, his title reign would not be that long. Or maybe it would be the best thing for him because the title would provide a little bit of a natural check on that. Wouldn't it? Like it, they're not going to think be- maybe that like winning the title would be the thing that Donald Cerrone would be like, all right, I'm just going to chill for a while. Well, they're just not going to be RV. calling you up to say, like, do you want to fight in three weeks as often? But if, would he be calling them? He would might the UFC be. feel like it had no choice but to put the light heavyweight title on the line on pay-per-view as much as it possibly could? Did you see him at the press conference, at the post-fight press conference? No, but I can imagine the he's, scene because I've seen it before. At one point, he's sitting there and he's got, like, four Budweiser bottles, you know, and, of course, the Monster Energy drink and the unopened bottle of water, like, all sitting in front of him. And it's just, my God, there has never been a a better synergy between fighter and sponsor than Donald Cerrone and Budweiser. It's going to be a shame if that stuff has to change in the Reebok era. Yeah, they. I believe he said in an interview recently that I saw that he's got a uh, like a one year contract with Budweiser, so he believes that they will stick with him at least for that. I that hope they stick with him beyond that because it's and if you're, you're Budweiser not find and a more you're guy. an enormous multinational corporation that makes a gazillion dollars a year, and I would keep Donald Cerrone around just for fun. Reebok just doesn't him, just to rep him. They don't make a beer, do they? Like a like a Reebok IPA or something that they're going to want him to to pretend to drink up I, there. I doubt it. But if you're Budweiser, you could have Donald Cerrone around to send to events where you either really want to impress people or or really don't want to impress them. Like if, <laughs> if there's a an, uh, some kind of organization that's pissed you off and and they want to have like a Budweiser rep come, just send Cerrone, man, and just be like, look, man. Hey, if we're going to look the other way here, like whatever you want to do. If you ask me what's the, the best thing I can say about Budweiser right now, it's their affiliation with Donald Cerrone. Yeah. See, they're helped out right there from you. Next question this week comes from J.P. Prenovost. He writes, I was really interested to read today that Conor McGregor was publicly endorsing the yes vote for gay marriage in Ireland. See link below. There's a link from MMAfighting.com under it. What impressed me more, however, is that the website disabled the comment feature for the article. I found this out when I went to leave a comment along the lines of, my respect for Conor has gone up a few notches. It's a curious editorial decision at best. As a fan base, are we so under-evolved that we need to be protected from ourselves? Yes. Yes, the answer to that question is yes. I can think of a number of reasons why you'd want to close the comments on a post like that. Uh, One would just be like, if you, in most websites, uh, especially like the size of MMA Fighting uh, and MMA Junkie, we do this, like kind of monitor the comments for abuse and just ridiculous shit. So they know they know what kind of stuff is going to pop up there in a post like that and you might just disable them because you don't want to have to keep coming back and deleting people's dumbass comments over and over again um but also it's one of those things where like i i can see why you'd feel like it's just going to be a like there are going to be people saying like hey my respect for Conor McGregor went up a few notches. And I felt that way when I saw him endorse that. I thought, sure, well, hey, sure. like, I, I'm glad he's doing that. And one of the reasons, though, that I was glad he was doing that was because I know and I'm pretty sure he knew that there were going to be people being assholes about it. 
and he felt like making his his view on that known was worth putting up with the assholes. And I could see how if you're a website that just wants to report that he did it, you don't necessarily feel like it's worth it for you to put up with the same assholes. Um, so, yeah, close those comments. Commenting on an internet article is not a right. That's a privilege. It's a weird thing that we've come to think of in the internet age. Like yeah. People didn't read newspapers and think like, I am entitled to let the entire world know how I feel about it right now. And how I feel about it is you're all a bunch of gays with a Z at the end. Uh, that's a new thing that we feel like we ought to be able to do. So I, I don't have any problem every once in a while just sh- shutting that thing off. And it's if good you for d- everyone's mental health. And if you did feel that way about a newspaper, at least you had to sign your own name to a letter to the editor that you would take the time to write and then send to the U.S. mails. And that they would consider before they would show it to anybody right. else. And they would call you on the phone to make sure you actually wrote it and then you still wanted to publish it and all that. Uh, would, how awesome would it be if Conor McGregor like peeled back the mask and revealed himself to not only be a UFC publicity juggernaut, but also as a former plumber to be like a hyper-liberal Labor Party uh, UK like hardcore left wing type guy. I feel like that, that would be kind of an awesome role for Conor McGregor to be running around in those suits talking about the, the poll tax or whatever. (laughs) That would be kind of the only thing I know about UK politics. I learned from exploited records in like 1991. So I'm (laughs) saying the poll tax. I also feel like, I don't know necessarily if it's this way in Ireland, but I think that like even the, the more conservative members of some political parties in the UK would be considered, uh, tending toward liberalism uh, over here. So it's a different I don't spectrum. Know, I don't Let's know if it, 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 it translates so perfectly. But no, good for him for, for willing, being willing to, to make that stand and knowing that there's going to be a bunch of people being dicks about it. Um, that does make me at least reconsider like how I view Conor McGregor. The next question this week, that's a good point because we don't know how Jose Aldo would feel. No, we on don't. The same the same issue. And why hasn't he said anything? That's right. Where, where's Jose <laughs> Next question this week comes from Matt Pasco. He writes, my wife and I flew in from Australia to attend UFC 187. The event was amazing. However, some of the behavior spelled in that sexy European way of the fans in attendance <laughs> soured the night. Having attended events down under the Aussies seemed knowledgeable and respectful. Uh, about ground fighting, guard passing, and clinch work all against the cage all applauded. Uh, not last night, though. Unless someone was putting their consciousness on the line, the fighters were met with boos and insults. I was especially taken aback by the abuse hurled towards D.C. in the main event. Are crowds outside the U.S. appreciative due to the limited exposure we have to live events? Are the American crowds spoiled for choice or too liquored up to give a shit? What gives? Perhaps I'm living in a perfect world where someone would pay hundreds of dollars to attend an event and actually have some appreciation for the sport they paid good money to attend. Discuss, uh... Two things. First, I would say welcome to attending a live mixed martial arts event in America uh, because there is a lot of surliness, a lot of drunkenness, and a lot of idiocy that goes along uh, both at the independent level and at the UFC. Uh, When I used to attend strictly as a fan before I became a professional journalist, uh, I'm not sure I ever attended a UFC event where I didn't see a wild fight at some point in the stands or like in the crowd as we were leaving. The second thing I would say is Las Vegas Memorial Day weekend. Don't underestimate the amount of random bros that 
that just walked into this thing, either like bought a very cheap ticket or got comped a ticket. And just because they were in Vegas, didn't know what else to do yeah. on a Saturday night because they'd already lost huge at the tables. And so they were like, well, let's go to this dude fight event. See, that's the point I was going to make. Well, for one thing, the the first point about uh, our crowds outside the U.S. appreciative due to limited exposure, we have to live events. That's possible. It could be that, too, that like if you if the UFC doesn't come to Australia very often, when they do come, it's probably more likely to be the hardcore fight right. fans who have yeah. really been wanting them to come. It's the opposite go. of Las Vegas yeah. on the Memorial Day weekend. Las Vegas Memorial Day weekend is a shit show, man. And you're right that like, and I think we underestimate this because I've noticed this before being in Las Vegas uh, for UFC events and you think that – I mean for one thing, it's people from all over uh, coming there and partying their balls off and especially you know, in, in Vegas, you can be drinking all day, walking off the strip with your, your big drink in the shape of a plastic Eiffel Tower mug in your hand and you walk into the arena with it in your tank top and your flip-flops holding your drink and you walk through there and they don't tell you like, Hey, you can't bring your outside alcoholic beverage in here. All they tell you is please put it in this plastic cup that we will provide you at the door. Like nowhere else really do they do that. That tells you already. It's a different fan experience in Las Vegas, but you're right that like I've been in Vegas before and you can, and heard overheard people's conversations like a man and the woman walking down the street on the, on the strip saying like, what do you want to do tonight? Do you want to go to that carrot top thing? Or do you want to try and go to this UFC? And like, or people who, like you said, are just gambling and they get somebody, they get a comp ticket uh, and they don't necessarily know anything about it. Like maybe they've seen it on TV a little bit, but they're probably not huge fans. They just want to see somebody get punched in the fucking head and fall down and they've been drinking for literally two days. So it's a different experience. Yeah, I was at UFC 43 where Tank Abbott fought chemo. Uh, Leopoldo, which was in 2003 now, which is at this point a long damn time ago, but was modern enough, modern enough that, uh, the hardcore mixed martial arts fans in the audience kind of knew what was coming, right? We, we, let's just say Tank Abbott was a known commodity by 2003 for most of us. And the fact that he got taken down and arm triangled by chemo in a minute and 59 seconds was not necessarily that shocking. What was shocking to me was the percentage of the live crowd that stood up and left after they saw Tank Abbott get choked out. Like basically threw down their Eiffel Tower-shaped drinks and were like, this is bullshit, and walked out. Yeah, here there's 50-cent wings over at the Tropicana. Fuck this. So those are some of the dudes that you're going to get, at least in, in part, when you go to an event in Las Vegas, especially on a, on a holiday weekend. Uh, well, that's going to do it, though, for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast on future episodes, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It's fun. It's informative. It's free. It catches you up on the news and notes that we miss in the MMA world from Monday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. Uh, sign up for it. You'll like it. It's humorous. If you don't like it, you can always just uh, unsubscribe. So, uh don't do that, though. That'll make us sad. Yeah. We'll see it, and then we'll think that maybe we should call you to talk about it. But no, we don't want to seem desperate. Um, so then we'll write you an email, but then we'll save it in drafts because we wrote it when we were kind of upset, and yeah. we don't know if we should send it. It's a good way to deal with your feelings. Yeah. Write a letter that you don't send. So basically, you're costing us like two hours. So just just keep getting just it. Just sign up and, and don't open it if you don't like it. Uh, but as for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and move on to round number one. 
Well, Ben, couldn't help but notice as we're getting ready to record round one here, I popped open Daniel Cormier's Wikipedia page so we could have his his stats and record at hand. And I can't help but notice in the corner here, he's already got his Wiki, Wikipedia photo updated so that it's a picture of him holding the belt barefoot on the concrete floor in the back at UFC 187, still wearing his fight shorts and gloves. Uh, so I guess at 36 years old, my opening question for you would be, Daniel Cormier seems pretty excited about being UFC champ, huh? Yeah, they didn't waste any time with that. That's, yeah, right, right on top of it. Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's not, it's not quite as cool as like, say, Conor McGregor's Wikipedia uh, photo or the the old one Phil Davis had of him strutting down the street with his T-shirt off tucked into or, his pocket. Or as we found out this past week, the Andre Arlovsky picture where he's wearing his mouth, he's like dressed in a suit, right? Yeah, and wearing his mouthpiece with the fangs on it. That's the kind of international playboy shit I'm talking about, Chad. Uh, but this one is still pretty good, uh, and Daniel Cormier. Should feel pretty good about being UFC light heavyweight champion. I agree. First major championship of his athletic career, we're led to believe. Uh, something he's obviously been waiting for for a long time. And a guy who had come up short in a lot of different areas uh, in terms of big big championship opportunities. He improves to 16-1 and one with this third round submission of Anthony Johnson. Uh, that one pink blemish on the record against John Jones back in January. Still looking pretty conspicuous since that's the only one there. Uh, but I believe as Daniel Cormier aptly put it himself at the post fight press conference, John Jones got himself disqualified from competition. Daniel Cormier did not. And so, uh, for the time being, it seems like we're just going to move on, uh, you know, without Jones until it is deemed that he is ready to come back. Okay. Let's. He got himself disqualified from competition. Wait, let's hold on. That's an awesome thing to say. That's it is. An it's awesome a total wrestler, amateur guy. wrestler. Yeah, I'm the kid who's always in your bracket, kind of thing. Yeah, to say. and showing up with your t-shirt tucked into your shorts uh, <laughs> for your fight. You no, know, clearly Daniel Cormier is doing some awesome wrestler guy stuff there. But the disqualified from competition thing, like it's not like he broke some competition related rule that everybody knows will result in your disqualification, like. You could see how even when John Jones was doing the stuff he allegedly did, he might have been thinking like, well, they didn't strip me of the title and kick me out for any of this other shit I've done. So this will probably be fine. Uh, but, you know, it didn't work out that way. So it seems convenient to interpret it that way as he disqualified himself from competition. The thing is, though, like, I, I get it. Daniel Cormier is the champion. He deserves to be called the champion. The belt was on the line. He won the belt. That's fine. We all know, though, still that you're not going to be able to call yourself the best light heavyweight in the world unless you beat John Jones at this point. Like, that's just that's the way it works. You get to walk around with the belt. Uh, and, you know, I like Daniel Cormier and, and more power to him. He, he deserves to have that belt right now, given the situation. But let's all like let's not pretend that this is something that it's not. Right. And I think, like we said last week. Daniel Cormier is fully aware of that. He's the dude who's smart enough to know that. And I think that his post fight interview, uh, performance indicates that, like I said last week, he probably viewed this, uh, more than the opportunity to win his first major championship, but as, you know, the quickest way to get a shortcut back to another fight with John Jones, who at this point is the only person to beat him in a mixed martial arts fight. And you know that, you know, to talk more about that wrestler mentality, the competitor inside Daniel Cormier, I would assume, has not been able to stop thinking about that since it's happened. Uh, and, you know, while he does possess that fighter 
psychology where you're kind of able to focus on the positives to a, a shocking degree. You, as you sit back, you know that life, lifetime, lifelong wrestler Daniel Cormier wants another shot at John Jones in the worst way. And frankly, let me add, starting all of your post-fights interviews by saying John Jones is also awesome. Yeah, well, and making that the entirety of your interview uh, before you turn around and walk off. Though that is sweet. So, like, and him doing that, I think, is also an admission, like, that he knows and that he he knows we know what the situation is, like. You don't if, – if the other guy who's, who got disqualified from competition and who's not around, if he doesn't matter, then you don't spend this much time talking about him. The fact that we're, we're talking about him so much means we all know who the best light heavyweight in the world as of right now is. Cormier gets to call himself the champ. John Jones still gets to call himself the best. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is though now you just don't know when might we see this resolved because if you tell me – if the UFC came – Next week, and we're like, good news, John Jones has completed the rehab program and settled out of court with this pregnant lady he hit, and everything's fine, and uh, he'll be back, we're thinking uh, September, September, October, John Jones, Daniel Cormier, I would not be that surprised no, by that. No, hell no, wouldn't be surprised at all, I don't know if that would be the right thing for John Jones's personal life, but yeah, well, it wouldn't see, be a surprising turn of events, and frankly, John Jones continues to cast a very long shadow in this division because the thing with Ryan Bader at the post-fight press conference felt a a little bit contrived to me. There was the part before the inner, like their confrontation where Daniel Cormier was like, there's another guy that needs his ass kicked. I think he's here tonight. And I was like, oh, okay, we're doing this. We're going <laughs> to gonna totally do this pro wrestling style. Uh, and so play Bader's entrance music. Yeah. Or not only did that feel kind of contrived to, for them to get into that like face to face confrontation at the post fight press conference. But there's also an aspect of it where you're like, Daniel Cormier versus Ryan Bader for the title, huh? Ugh, okay. <laughs> so like division wise, I feel like you need to get John Jones back as soon as you can. There's been some people like kind of ruffled by the fact that John Jones would come back and get an immediate title shot. But like, let's be honest, that's what's happening. And, uh, you know, it's been what, almost like a month, right? Since he made that initial court appearance in Albuquerque. And we still haven't heard anything about, uh, prosecutors there announcing that they're actually going to move forward with these Wait, are you felony saying, charges against him. Are you saying this is when you feel like you should call up the prosecutors in New Mexico and ask, are you still there, pussy? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, my gut tells me that they will charge him with a felony, if nothing else, to get his lawyer to call them and plea bargain with them. But also, like, if they don't do that in 60 days, my impression is that those charges just kind of go away. And if that happens, and we're left with a situation where Though John Jones is very lucky no one was killed in this alleged hit and run accident, uh, we will be faced with a situation where nobody got really seriously hurt. Uh, and if the charges just go away, then you, you, you are reduced to a situation where all the UFC has to do is decide that you have overcome your as yet unnamed personal demons. So, uh, I still anticipate John Jones coming back. I anticipate him come back, coming back sooner rather than later. And I anticipate him and Daniel Cormier main eventing a, a UFC against each other. Uh, you know, first things first. Now, does that happen before Daniel Cormier fights Ryan Bader? That might be the million dollar question. Let's Actually, talk that might be like the $800,000 question. Yeah. yeah. And that's before taxes. Right. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Anthony Johnson, uh, here before we move on. Uh, he, at first, for the first minute, were you not thinking, this is a textbook Rumble Johnson fight? Comes out, gets poked in the eye, drops Daniel Cormier with a big right hand, and you're thinking, oh God, here we go again. Uh, and I was really surprised that he, I mean, he looked pretty good. He looked dangerous throughout that, that first round. 
and he seemed to crumble a little bit easily uh, in the second. He got when he got stuck in uh, in in half guard on the bottom, and you could just see him with his mouth wide open, flat on his back, sucking in huge gulps of air. And you think, well, here we go, like this. And and I I really I mean I thought that Daniel Cormier would be able to to wrestle him and wear him down uh, and just kind of grind away at him, but I didn't think it would show like such I didn't think it would pay the dividends that it did so quickly it really makes you wonder about the guy that how how are you not a little bit more prepared for that style of fight uh, because it seemed like everybody else expected that it would go pretty much like that. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between being thinking that you're prepared and then getting in there with the Olympic wrestler. But like people used to call the guy Crumble Johnson for a reason. It's the word you just used, and like people used to kind of mock him about that. And in the past, I think we've had the tendency to blame it on the weight cut, as we've blamed right. almost yeah. everything else in Anthony Johnson's career, unlike the the enormous weight cut. Uh, he gets in this situation, and you're right, didn't look like he was actually ready to get in there. With with a grappler the caliber of Daniel Cormier. And those strikes on the ground, some thudding elbows there, did have the, at least from the outside looking in, it looked like they had the the effect of kind of making him think he didn't want to be there. And that, to me, seems like more of a psychological uh, situation than maybe we would have given it credit for back when he was trying to cut all the way to 170 pounds. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like if you, if you come out for the, for the second and third round of this one looking like you don't want to be there, um, that's trouble because you are in the light heavyweight UFC title fight that you have wanted, you know, throughout your nine fight win streak or whatever. Right. And it did seem like his corner was attacking that problem proactively when after the second round when they had him on the stool there you got the sense that they were worried that that's what was happening that that he was mentally fallen out of the fight there and they were trying to rally him back into it like i think there was at one point where they kind of like reminded him and it seemed like they were trying to remind him in a hopeful way like hey it's a five round fight man like as in like you just clearly lost that round and ended up at the end of it sitting down on the mat bleeding shaking your head like you just wanted to go home um, but hey, you can, you can, there's still plenty of time to turn around. And it somehow came out sounding, given his situation right then, like more of a threat. Like it's a five round fight. God, five rounds of this? That sounds awful. Uh, and then when he went out there, he just didn't have it in the third round. Right. And like that clues you into the fact that the, if the guys who know him the best are reacting that way, that like maybe that's a thing that happens to Anthony Johnson and the guys who train with you every day know that. And, and, you know, they're kind of in oh shit mode there and they're trying to counteract it. Meanwhile, across the cage in the AKA corner, they're like, ah, fuck it. Let's pretend like he won that round, which is what they said to Daniel Cormier after the first. <laughs> uh, also indicative of, uh, you know, the notion that like, we're ready to go five, yeah. even if this other guy isn't. Uh, all right. Well, let's, Ben, we'll do, uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to, uh, round number two today. Uh, Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad. I wasn't even really aware that the UFC store had a Twitter account. Uh, not that I would think that they wouldn't, but just because why would I ever stop and think about the UFC store? Uh, and it came to my attention recently, a couple ill-advised tweets, uh, one of which showed before UFC 187, uh, a tweet that said, it's rumble, hashtag rumble time, RT if Anthony Rumble is your champ pick. Uh, with a picture of a woman wearing an Anthony Johnson t-shirt, which seems like maybe kind of a tone-deaf way to try to sell a damn t-shirt for the guy who has the, as it's been called, checkered past with domestic violence issues, uh, is to try to sell women's t-shirts by him. 
Are you fucking kidding me on that? Also, then uh, we're going to go ahead and try to sell uh, Rose Namajunas shirts uh, in advance of her bout after, though, it's already been announced that that bout isn't happening. Are you fucking kidding me, UFC store, Twitter? Why do I have to learn about your existence when you're messing up? Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? You couldn't think you couldn't think maybe the women's shirts was not the thing you wanted to try to sell with Anthony Johnson. Are you sure that's not like a parody account like Nihilist Arby's? Dog, it is verified. Little oh. blue check next to it and everything. Forty four thousand followers. No parody. Wow, forty four thousand no, followers. You could not do yeah. a parody of the UFC store good enough <laughs> for forty four thousand followers. Well, Ben, speaking of tone deaf, I know that we should have no expectation at this point that UFC pay per views are going to tell us the whole truth about anything. But this past weekend at UFC one eighty seven, I thought that it was kind of striking in that uh, the broadcast basically ignored almost all of the biggest storylines leading up to these flight fights. Just flat out ignored them for the most part. Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg, it kind of seemed like they were even trying to put it in our face as they marveled about uh, Vitor Belfort's longevity and told us over and over and over again that, you know, at 38 years old, he's, he's, even more dangerous than he was at 19. Uh, they counted down his the time that he had spent in the UFC to the day and repeated over and over that three of his most spectacular wins had come in his last three fights. Oh, but wait, the guy who showed up tonight physically does not resemble the guy in those highlights at all. But we're not going to make any mention of why. As you said, they talked a lot about Rumble Johnson and how much they loved his story of redemption, but they never even nodded toward the checkered past, as you call it. Uh, and, and to be honest, they never really engaged with the idea of why John Jones wasn't on this pay-per-view. They just said that he was on the sidelines and on hiatus, and then they showed one highlight package where you gotta watch pretty closely to see the, uh, graphic that they, that they used from Fox Sports 1 where they told you why he couldn't be there tonight. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, look, I know why the UFC does these things. They're trying to sell us stuff. Uh, and it's their broadcast. They own it. I suppose they can do what they want with it. Uh, but basically, if you shell out 60 bucks for these things, it seems like you're getting a, a three-hour infomercial more than like a, an actual sports broadcast. And so I have to wonder aloud whether it would really be so bad if they just, you know, like told us the truth. Are you fucking kidding me? That's, I'm going to say, are you fucking kidding me to you? Do you, you have you met these people? I, you fucking I, kidding me? I'm fully aware of what they do. I'm just saying. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. All right. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, in the battle between the followers of Jesus and the followers of Jesus, I think Chris Weidman struck a decisive blow at UFC 187 on Saturday night. Went out there against the man who resembled Vitor Belfort, mainly in hairstyle. Uh, survived an early flurry, then put Belfort down and absolutely damn trucked him on the mat 
totally demolished him, and then still seemed like he wanted to maybe make an issue out of Vitor Belfort's testosterone levels after it was all over. I mean, this seemed to me like pretty much what I expected uh, this fight to look like. If anything, maybe a little more dominant from Weidman uh, than I thought it would be. Any surprises here for you? Um, I was surprised that Chris Weidman appeared so reckless in the early going, and I think that that might be a thing about him, uh, that he has a tendency to kind of overextend himself and be a little bit reckless. But you, Because you saw in the early going, he shot for that first takedown, and Belfort was able to shuck him off, but in doing so, like kind of stumbled, got himself into a scramble-type situation, at which point Chris Weidman uh, rushed across the cage in the bar bouncer, like, rush, and, like, tried to take him down again, failed, and then Vitor Belfort kicked him in the head. Uh, maybe when he was down, it was hard to tell, it was borderline. But, like, you could see that if that were the testosterone replacement therapy version of Vitor Belfort, we might have been in some real trouble at that point because I don't know that there's ever been a guy who has looked so dangerous when he's on his various medicines uh Early, very early in his career when he was 19 and then again, um, you know, in his last three fights when he was he was publicly on TRT and looks so pedestrian when he's not like there's a huge divide there. And Belfort at that point when I think he had Weidman stunned through everything that he had at him up against the cage. And, you know, Weidman at that point was able to kind of step back, take one split second to regroup and then shot a double in the middle of the cage, which he was able to land. And that was the end of it. Uh, but Just halted all his momentum. And yeah, that for sure. Take down. But I wonder like in terms of Chris Weidman's uh, vulnerability moving forward, like if we'll see him try to fight within himself a little bit more, because I think it's those instances where maybe he gets a little over eager uh, where he puts himself in danger. Well, I mean, I think that's in a way kind of a virtues of his fault scenario. Like he's a pressure fighter right. to begin with, and that works really well with him. He also uh, he can take a good punch, and he seems like he doesn't worry about it. And and that's one of the things he has going for him. You can push that a little too far. You can be a little too willing to take a punch. Uh, but I think that he also feels like, hey, if I get that guy extending himself to try to hit me. I'll be able to take it and come back with something, whether it's a takedown or, or a counter punch or whatever, uh, so that it's worth it for me. Like the, the more I can promote some kind of action to be happening constantly, the better it is for my style. And so far, I mean, he's made that work. Uh, you know, you can make the case that you, you're going to mess around one of these days and do that to the wrong person, but it didn't happen there. I mean, as soon as he got Vitor Belfort down, uh, there was just no, even like halt, no, no pause to his advancing offense from there. You know, move to mount, uh, beat up Belfort a little bit. Belfort actually trying to punch back from the bottom in mount, Chad, like it's 1997 or something. Uh, and takes his back briefly back to mount, just hammers him there until it's finally mercifully stopped. It just seemed like didn't meet with any resistance really at all as soon as he got the fight to the floor. And I guess that's one of the things that, uh, that make the, when you step back, you realize like, man, Chris Weidman could hold this division down for a while, uh, with his, like the way, uh, his style of fighting, uh, makes the absolute best use of all the, the traits that he has as an athlete. 
even guys who do one or two things really well are going to run up against him and and have a hard time solving that puzzle because it's just like you're you're going to have to do more than just you know really good jujitsu or good striking or something. It, like you're going to be in for a full night of work against this guy. And then also, I mean, I guess makes is a is a good segue to the next point. I found it interesting him and I wrote a little something about it, but uh, his plea for people to join the team afterwards. Yeah. You you're getting the sense that it seems like. Chris Weidman, and maybe the UFC feels this way too. Like, it seems like he should be a bigger star, doesn't it? When you think about it, undefeated record, knocked out Anderson Silva and smashing Brazilian middleweight legends. It seems like he should be a huge star right now. And, like, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it just hasn't happened quick enough for them. But this sense that, like, he feels like he's not getting the respect that he deserves. Which seems weird to me because when I saw him, he's like a 4-1 to favorite over Vitor Belva. It's not like people are doubting him. Who's doubting him? At this point. Yeah. Um, well, for a long time, people did try to shortchange his accomplishments. I mean, there was a, a lot of pushback after the first Anderson Silva victory. Uh, the second Anderson Silva victory, people just sort of seemed to take it and be like, okay, well, I guess this guy's going to be our middleweight champion, even though the finish of that one, I've always said, was arguably more fluky than the finish of the first one. Uh, and the weird thing about Chris Weidman is... I feel like he is at his most dislikable on UFC programming. I don't know if you watched the sit-down interview that he did with Ariel Helwani this past week before the fight, uh, but very authentic, very likable, I thought, very uh, open Chris Weidman for a half hour in that uh, in that venue. And then I didn't see any of his... Uh, more mainstream media appearances, but I heard that there was a few that obviously they got him on some Fox properties and that he did well. He seemed likable and, and affable. Uh, and we've always talked about what a terrible interview he is. And I started to wonder, terrible. just started terrible. to wonder like maybe it's like the format of the 10 minute pre-fight interviews that the UFC likes to do where they set people up and they basically, they do a day full of interviews or a few hours full of interviews at this, at the same time, which frankly would kind of grate on anyone. Yeah. I think answering the same questions in 10 minute intervals over and over again. Uh, and I was like, maybe it's the format that like makes Chris Weidman look dislikable because after this Ariel Hawani interview, I was like, Oh, like, it's hard to not like Chris Weidman after you watch that. And then as soon as this pay-per-view started and he, he did that promo about beating Brazilian legends and how he, he had one more left. I was like, okay, well, I could kind of see how he seems, you know, unlikable here. And then like the thing where he got on the mic and yelled at the fans, stop doubting me, get on the team. This is my last invitation. I thought was I also, love I love you. Yeah. I love you. I thought that was also, Do you really love me though. You don't even know me. He, he doesn't. But if you were an old lady and you were going to die in the driveway next to his house, he would save you. Uh, I thought that was weird and like kind of off-putting of Chris Weidman. And so like I guess I've come around to this idea that uh, he's at his least likable when he's doing his job, which maybe is true of, of many of us. But uh, like to circle back to his actual abilities – he is very talented and seems like the prototype for what you'd expect the skills a 2015 UFC champion to have. And he could be the champion for a long time. I think 
interestingly enough, the most compelling matchup for him is maybe Luke Rockhold, who we're going to get next just because of Rockhold's size and mobility. And he trains at that camp where he's going to get a lot of good wrestling for weeks on end. Maybe we'll get him next. Maybe we'll get Jacques Array. I mean, Dana White seems to be talking about both possibilities afterwards. So it seems still unclear who's going to be next. I mean, personally, I, I do think it should be Rockhold. And I think it's a, but, uh, we've talked about this before. Right now, you can look around the UFC middleweight division and there are a lot of interesting fights there. You got Rockhold and Jacques Array, your guy, the soldier of dog, Yoel Romero. Uh, you know, that, that'd be kind of a crazy fight. You know, he's going to do something wacky. Uh, there's a lot of like good opportunities there for him. I guess it seems like one of those, I, I wonder, do we have to make our peace with the fact that like, Hey, he's not going to be the breakout superstar that's going to reach across like out of the MMA bubble and into all the other stuff. Uh, even though maybe we think that skill wise, he deserves to be. Um, like he's like, I wrote before, like if, if he were Conor McGregor, like if he were from Ireland right now, they would be rallied so far behind him. You know, it'd be insane. Like the, the stuff that he's done already, uh, and the way like he really tries to rep the U S and we're just not that into that. Like when we see you like show up with an American flag wrapped around you, I don't know. I feel like Americans, we're more likely to suspect that you're pandering, uh, than we are to feel like some kind of patriotic, unity uh behind it so maybe we just have to make our peace with that that chris weidman is going to be the dude who is really really awesome and a lot of people are still going to not know who the hell chris weidman is but then if you show them a chris weidman fight they'll get it uh, maybe that wouldn't be so bad i mean i i do think that skill wise at this point you can't say that he does not deserve that recognition as one of the best middleweights uh that we've seen um give him a couple more years of doing this kind of stuff. And like, yeah, maybe, maybe you do have to just stop talking about any of the other aspects of it or how big a star he is or isn't. And just recognize that a dude is kind of what we've been waiting for in mixed martial arts for a long time, as far as just what he can actually do in the cage. Yeah. He's definitely got all the skills. He's, he's got that, uh, I mean, the thing that separates him from a lot of the takedown artists that we've seen in the past, guys like Chael Sonnen, uh, you know, who arguably had some of the better takedowns for mixed martial arts that we've ever seen. Like the thing that, that separates Weidman from a guy like Sonnen is that Weidman will fucking finish you after he puts you on the mat. And we saw him take Vitor Belfort down in space, not up against the cage, just straight double, got it, no problem, and dumped him on his butt, which, you know, very few guys do that. At this stage in MMA's development, 2015, most guys work off off space. They get you up against the cage. They collapse your base and they take you down. Wyman did it out in the middle of the cage, no problem. And, you know, that was a, a thing that Sonnen used to do. Uh, but when Weidman puts you down there, he's got the full complement of chokes and uh, also some heavy ground and pound. Uh, and he kind of, like personality-wise strikes me as the walking embodiment of a Tom Petty song in a lot of ways, <laughs> which kind of fits like that's his walkout, but it's like, uh, Tom Petty. Okay. Like you're not Springsteen. You're, I'm not going to get mad if yeah, you start playing Tom Petty. Just, I won't insist that you turn it off. Yeah. It's just Tom Petty, but I'm not just, but I'm not calling into the radio station and be exactly. like, play that Tom Petty. Exactly. Man. And that's the thing that I think he'll struggle with moving forward. I think he's going to have the chance to do some impressive stuff in the cage. And if anything, will save him and, and turn him into a guy who can draw money. Maybe it's uh, a fistful of highlights. I don't know. Well, let's talk a little bit before we wrap up about Vitor Belfort, who it oh, seems indeed. like uh, we kind of we, we might have shut the book on the the resurrection and improbable uh, rise of Vitor Belfort from the ashes. 
you know, we were thinking, I was talking with Danny Downs about it and thinking about it. You mentioned them not mentioning it on the broadcast and how if Vitor Belfort had showed up looking that different and we didn't know the reason why. Like if it was just like we saw him in 2013, jacked, traps coming out of his ears, all, all vascular, as you like to say, and defined. And then he showed up for the, the title fight that he had worked all this way to get to and he looks so different. There's no way Joe Rogan would not have said, like, hey, he looks really different. I wonder how this is going to play into the fight. He looks like he's lost a lot of muscle mass. So like that really does tell you something like how like we're just like really carefully avoiding that. Because otherwise, man, if he'd had the flu, if he looked that way because he had like the flu for a really long time, you know it would have been a huge topic of conversation before that bout. The fact that it's not means like that that can't be an accident. Well, and also everyone knew that this was coming. They put up that official draft Kings fight pick em or whatever before the bout. And 75% of people were picking Chris Weidman to win. And if we expected the TRT version of Vitor Belfort or even the same version of Vitor Belfort who had knocked out Mike Bisping and Luke Rockhold and Dan Henderson right in a row, all with head kicks, even if you took TRT completely out of the equation, if we were expecting that guy to show up, no way would there be, would the, the disparity be that noticeable in terms of who people were picking to win this fight. So, and again, like I said in, in, in my, are you fucking kidding me? It just seemed weird and almost like they were putting it in our face that they weren't talking about that because they just kept bringing up how amazing Vitor Belfort had looked in his last three fights and how at 38 he was more, you know, dangerous than he was at 19. And then they put up that, that fan poll basically and it's like, the people aren't buying it, yeah. man. Like everyone knew what was coming, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. Well, and I mean, you mentioned before that how you can you can make a a reasonable case for like avoiding like talking about Anthony Johnson's checkered past because it you know if you say hey the guy copped a plea on domestic violence charges ten years ago doesn't really have anything to do with the actual fight that we're about to watch, but this does have to do with the fight. Like, and I think everybody wondered like how much it had to do with the fight. Like, does a TRT Belfort beat Chris Weidman? I don't think so, but I think he does better than that. Uh, and it did seem like it was a large piece of the fight itself was Vitor, the, the new version of Vitor Belfort after the TRT era had ended. And it also, it's like the worst possible look for him. Like, if you, if you're Vitor Belfort right now wondering what your legacy is going to be, you know, people used to speculate him about him before, back when he was like 19 and he was the, the wonder kid, uh, looking pretty yoked back then. Like Matt Sarah was out there. I saw talking about his own TRT use and saying he knows it must have helped Belfort. And he was saying, Hey, look at him back there in those days. You, you want to tell me that looks like a guy who wasn't on something? Then he, he did pop positive, uh, for that pride fight against Dan Henderson. Then he had the, the kind of controversial TRT use. And then the first time he shows up where we have reason to think, just based on the circumstances and his actual appearance that it seems like, hey, he might be fighting clean, even if Weidman wasn't buying it, he gets just run over. Uh, that looks to everybody, like, in hindsight, like, in retrospect, when they're stepping back and taking a big picture look at your career, they're going to start to wonder, like, how much of it was you and how much of it was chemically aided. Yeah, and you talked last weekend about his psychology and how he was going to react to, like, the uh, the the transition phase of getting off TRT. He just had all these amazing uh, performances and then he had to take 18 months off to transition off this thing after the Nevada State Athletic Commission banned it. Let's not forget that. Uh, 
And then he comes out and he gets run over. So like if we had questions about how he was going to be psychologically affected before, I think it'll be real interesting to happens what happens to Vitor Belfort now. Uh, but I guess we'll have to wait and find out what that is moving into the future. Um, that's going to do it for round number two this week. We're going to get started right now with round number three. Ben, well, Saturday night, UFC Fight Night 67. We're going to get our first look at Carlos Condit since UFC 71 in March of last year, where he lost to Tyron Woodley when he kind of famously blew out his knee uh, in that fight. And he's going to be taking on Tiago Alves, uh, who we've only seen twice, once in 2014 and once in January of this year since 2012 when he lost to uh, Martin Campman way back on a UFC on FX card. The main event of that, actually, Martin Campman against Tiago Alves. Uh, so this is going to be kind of an interesting fight for two guys who essentially return to a welterweight division uh, greatly changed from the welterweight division that they spent the bulk of their careers fighting in. Uh I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I think that likely benefits Carlos Condit the most since he was at one time the interim champion. Do you see either of these guys, whoever gets a win here, making any noise at 170 pounds considering that uh, the top of the food chain, at least in theory, is a little bit more wide open than it was when George St. Pierre was just kicking everybody's ass? Yeah, I mean, if you're one of these welterweights that uh, was – hanging around the top 10 or the top 5 and couldn't quite make that final push to the the title in the GSP days. Hashtag the time is now. Uh, this is a pretty good opportunity for these guys, especially guys like Tiago Alves where you know somebody like George St. Pierre uh, or even somebody like Johnny Hendricks is probably going to out-wrestle him all the time. Uh, but hey, you get into a, a slugfest with a guy like Robbie Lawler, you got a chance in that one. Uh, you, you, you could always land that one big blow that makes you a UFC champion for a couple of minutes. So, yeah, I think that those guys have reason to be kind of optimistic. They also, though, the fact that they're headlining a card like this tells you, like, these, this is a good era for those guys kind of in general, like violence fighters, where the UFC knows that they can count on you to go in there and they, they can match you up, especially a guy like Carlos Condit and somebody like Tiago Alves, and they can be like, well, this is guaranteed to, to go a couple rounds, be pretty brutal, uh, fans will love it, and it's not such a huge fight that you feel like you got to stick it on pay per view. It's a good main event for a, a cable TV fight night card from Guyana, Brazil. Uh, so, I mean, the UFC should be glad to have the Carlos Condits and the Tiago Alves in its back pocket for an event like this. Yeah, and uh, Tiago Alves, I believe, I don't know, probably not the case for Carlos Condit, but he's going to be up there in that top tier of. Uh... Reebok sponsorship money as of this fight, I think. He, he, well, that hasn't started yet. This will be his, uh, Starts in his July. 24. Yeah, but I'm saying when it, when it kicks in, he'll be, he'll be in the top tier. Here's something that's going to. So he'll lose slightly less money. <laughs> exactly. Here's something that's going to blow your mind, Ben. Both these guys are only 31 years old. Uh, so essentially, 
in theory, coming into their athletic prime or, or still in the thick of their athletic prime for MMA fighters, even though both guys have had some, uh, some significant injuries. Uh, clearly, I think either guy would have some work to do to get back in the mix uh, coming out of this fight. But if you're Carlos Condit, you go out there and you're able to do something impressive against Tiago Alves, who frankly uh, looked like he was he was losing the race against Jordan Mayan in his fight in, in January before he dropped him with a body kick uh, early in the second round. Uh, if you're Carlos Condit and you can come back and prove that despite that knee injury, you're still the, the same old natural born killer that we've seen before. Like I would think you would be pretty well set up to at least be a player in this new uh, welterweight division. Yeah. And I don't think that guys like that would have to string together a Donald Cerrone esque win streak either to, in order to make their case for another shot. Eventually, you know, the UFC is going to, once it's, kind of exhausted the, the couple of guys sweeps sweepstakes we got going on for the welterweight title now they're going to get back around to somebody like you and so if you can string together a couple wins especially over somebody like tiago alves then that does start to look pretty good for you i wonder carlos Conor was one of the guys when i was working on my story about the re, after the reebok pay numbers came out and malki kawa was talking about him in particular as being one of those guys who sponsors really liked and you can kind of see that uh, and how he was going to really lose big on it, that he was just doing six figures a year, every year, easily uh, in sponsorships. And now, you know, even with his his WEC fights, that's going to that's going to take a huge hit. And something like that, you got to think like that's somebody who really is at that point where I'm sure he's making pretty good UFC money, but he's not making like anything that he's going to retire off just off his base pay. The sponsors are probably just a huge part of his income. Now that's gone, man, that has got to hurt for a guy like that. Yeah, especially Carlos Condit, who is a family guy. He's got a couple of kids, right? Uh, um, and even though I said before he's still in the thick of his athletic career, uh, he's got about you know, 36, 37 fights in his career. And, and getting into your early 30s, probably the time that you start considering, uh, if not your own mortality, the lifespan of your fighting career. And a smart guy, obviously, who comes from a – uh, like a, a well-known family in New Mexico. His dad was uh, like the chief aide, chief aide to Governor Bill Richardson. There you go. I think. Uh, so like a, a, a guy who has a, a well-known family in New Mexico and a smart guy who may not stick around the, the, the fight game uh, forever. I guess he comes, he goes into this fight against Tiago Alves as, as about a, a, you know, almost a three to one favorite about a, a two, two, he's minus 250 in a lot of places. And also surprising, I guess, to note that despite that injury, Carlos Condon still ranked number four officially in the UFC welterweight ranking. So take that for what it's worth, but it, it, it at least it, it lends the uh, perception, if nothing else, that he's still right there with Johnny Hendricks, Rory McDonald, and, and Tyron Woodley. Uh, and so if he goes out there and, and gets a win against number 12, Tiago Alves, maybe there's really not that far for him to go before he's in the title picture again. Who's number five? Matt Brown, the immortal. Huh. Okay. So you got Johnny Hendricks as your number one contender because the UFC does that weird thing where the champion is not part of the top 15. Rory McDonald, Tyron Woodley, and then Carlos Condit as of today. Those could change. Those could. As of next Monday. Yeah. Where if you got a fight coming up, you probably start sliding up the rankings. You know, I almost I was thinking about it earlier uh, when we were talking about what we were going to do for this episode, and I kind of had the 
I, I feel like I keep snapping back into this whenever somebody mentions this fight. I'm like, oh yeah, oh, oh, that's this weekend. Okay, I I feel like I knew or at least assumed there was a UFC event this weekend, but after UFC 187 and then just the monstrous hype job that we're already doing for UFC 189, I guess it just didn't quite register in my brain. It seems like it's going to be tough on some of the like between UFC 187 and, and UFC 189, you're like I know there are a bunch of fight nights and presumably a UFC 188 in there somewhere and yet it just doesn't seem like like anybody gives too much of a shit at this point. Yeah, well then this is a weird uh I guess valley in the Peace and Valley uh UFC live event season because this event from Guyana Brazil um I guess the good news is that it airs at the at the same time as a standard UFC pay-per-view event would air. It starts at 8 p.m. on Saturday here in the One True Time Zone, but the the whole card is a little lackluster. I think this main event will be Interesting, but I mean, aside from this, you got Nick Lentz against Charles Oliveira. Uh, KJ Nunes is on the card. Ryan Jimmo is on the card. Norman Park is on the card. Uh, Juicier Formiga is way down on the prelims. But aside from that, you know, some guys that maybe aren't that well known. And then, you know, you could say that about this event. And then June 6th, Dan Henderson against Tim Boach, for God's sakes, uh, on UFC Fight Night 68, where Matt Mitrione and Ben Rothwell is the co-main. And then, as you said, you got UFC 188, where the goddamn UFC heavyweight title is on. And the we're line. not even talking about it. Not even, not even going to mention it. That's in a couple of weeks, the day after my son's official due date. So keep your fingers crossed on that one. Is that one? I just need to know how it's going to affect my life and the lives of our listeners. Are, are, are we? Do we have a contingency plan in place for what the hell is going to happen to the podcast when your son bursts into the world and begins destroying your house? Ah. Uh, we're going to have to come up with one because the rumor is I will have that child. If things go perfectly, I will have that child for the rest of my life. That's <laughs> kind of how that works. So we might have to come up with a, with a different plan recording at a local tavern. Perhaps we could get a local, a maybe local a saloon to to sponsor us yeah. and put a banner up behind the bar. There we go. Maybe. I mean, if you hadn't talked all this shit on the press box, every time I go to eat or find breakfast there, maybe we could go approach them. This we, is all you need to think about. We would not be recording. Opportunities. We would not be recording at the press box. Well, how about uh, the parking lot of the gas station? I can, we can do I that. can run in and get us a couple you know, old E forties every once in a while. There's some seats in there, right there. There, by the, there are by the hot dogs and the red box. We could uh, we could sit in there and record. Pretty, I, I bet pretty much every week, and with with minimal accosting, we would get accosted in a minimal fashion by the the swarms of homeless people that are down there. I, I don't know. I've been in there and I feel like the minute you sit in one of those seats, the Missoula police department already has its eye on you. <laughs> yeah. On and they're not the list. only ones either. Like that's the least of your worries that the cops are watching you down there. <laughs> All right, man, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, as you know, the guys over on Reddit MMA clued us in this past week to the fact that it seems like UFC lightweight champion, former UFC lightweight champion, I guess I should say, Anthony Pettis also has a guy for pyramid schemes. Wow, he's got as a guy for everything. The website, workwithpettis.com, was advertising a, a tremendous opportunity for his fans uh, to get involved with some weird business endeavor that sounded kind of like Mary Kay or perhaps 
like selling energy drinks out of the trunk of your car. Uh, it was hard to say exactly what that business was that Anthony Pettis was super excited to get you involved in, uh, except that it seemed shady as fuck. And I clicked on the link at one point and it seemed like it had something to do with beauty products made from the salt of the Dead Sea. I'm in. Yeah. That's all I need to hear. For what it's worth, I tried to go back to the website today to do some fact checking and it seemed like workwithpettis.com uh, was down. But what of my investment? <laughs> In any case, I'm just saying this week, Ben, shit is hard out here for a UFC champion right now. In case you have not noticed, they are trying to take all these people's money away from them. A former so UFC champion. Perhaps what Anthony Pettis supposes is the real suckers out there are the ones who aren't trying to get their fans involved in a pyramid scheme. <laughs> In fact, if I were a UFC fighter, Ben, I'd be trying to get my friends to sell the shit out of some off-brand skin products on the regular. Believe that. I'm just saying. I do believe that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying. Don't you ever fucking say you're sorry. <laughs> Jesus. You hear me? Don't you ever fucking say you're sorry. Now, that beautiful moment between Travis Brown and Andre Arlovsky, I'm just saying, I don't know what they have planned for True Detective Season 3, but I feel like we start with that moment and that line of dialogue, and we just work out from there, and you can just go ahead and give us our Emmy right now. Give it to us, please. Emmy. Don't ever fucking say or sorry. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 66. 60-something? 67? Just kind of cover your mouth. And then look ahead to that event where my guy Tim Boach takes on Dan Henderson. Oh, God. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Now, if there is a guy I'm going to buy off-brand skin products from, it's going to be Anthony Pettis. He does have that glow. Yeah. He is... He does look pretty good most of the time. In fact, I was wondering, perhaps, maybe that's how Anthony Pettis got in the off-brand skincare game. Is that uh, personal experience, you could say. I'm not buying skin products from one of these.